Welcome to another episode of Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. You can also find me on Twitter at EBR underscore VFR, where again, I will sometime in the future be posting more. We're going to start tonight with a bit of a little bit of good news for the summer months. Uh, it wasn't actually particularly worrying to any of the infectious disease experts, but a study published last week in the journal Scientific Reports confirmed that mosquitoes cannot spread COVID-19. Researchers at the University of Kansas infected three prominent species of mosquitoes with the virus and then looked to see if the virus could move from the insect's guts to other organs, most importantly, the salivary glands. Overcoming the mid-gut infection and escape barriers is essential for a virus to be transmissible by mosquitoes, the researchers wrote. The coronavirus didn't make it out of the gut in order to be any sort of issue. No virus was detected in the 277 inoculated mosquitoes collected and titrated at the time points beyond 24 hours, suggesting a rapid loss of infectivity and the lack of replication after injection, the researchers found. Even if a mosquito fed on a person with virus in the blood, the mosquito would not be a vector. So that's a sliver of good news. Um... I mean, the only other sliver of good news is that uh, Hampshire County continues to be on the relatively low end of the uh, scale for infectivity overall. But obviously, we need to keep that up by continuing to make sure that we are using social distancing properly, using masks when we need to go indoors anywhere especially, and just continuing to use proper precautions because the thing is, is that we can't just say, oh, well, I haven't heard of anybody who had it recently, so I guess we're doing fine now. That does not work. We are going to need to keep up our vigilance in order to make sure that the infection stays out of our sphere. Okay, so let's move on, and we are going to move on to a couple of stories that have a sort of localish connection. The first story is a warning to how we can underestimate the long-term effects of pollution and a great story to tell people when they downplay the idea that pollution has extremely long-term effects. The second story will be a bit more hopeful, I guess. <laughs> research, research on combating a pest that strikes against corn, which uh, is a very important valley crop. So let's start with a story about mercury. Mercury is a toxic chemical, which is often found in seafood. So, uh, you know, we know about mercury. We know that there are not really safe levels of mercury, but we know that there are levels of mercury that the body can tolerate. But there is a very small range of the ability of the body to tolerate 
Mercury. And so we want to be constantly making sure that we're not getting too much. And so that's why, for instance, pregnant women are often told not to eat tuna more than a couple of times a month because tuna is notorious for having mercury. And so mercury was used heavily between the 1700s and the early 20th century and was, as you may remember from the story of the Mad Hatter, used extensively by hat makers. It was actually used to soften the felt so that, they, so that it could be more easily molded. Now, this practice was not actually ended until 1940 when the use of mercury in hat making was outlawed. Which brings us to Danbury, Connecticut, which was apparently once called the Hat City of the World, and thus had many factories producing hats and dumping dangerous mercury into surrounding waterways like the Still River. Kayla Anatone, a, a current PhD student at Wesleyan University, was interested not only in local history, but whether or not that history had left a lasting mark on the environment. She joined a team of researchers from the University of Connecticut and Wesleyan University, who spent four years studying a stretch of the Still River. The team, including PhD student Gunnar Hansen, Professor Robert Mason, Assistant Research Professor Zofia Bauman, and Wesleyan University professor Barry Chernoff found that, despite the fact that mercury had supposedly not been dumped in the river in almost a century, the river still contains very high levels of mercury. Bauman notes that while there have been previous studies of the mercury levels in the river, they had not been sum summarized in a systematic way in order to make them actually a real study of the river. And so this is the first comprehensive investigation of the Still River. Mercury can be found, again, worldwide, and it is naturally occurring in many places at low levels. However, use of mercury-enriched coal and other fossil fuels which powered the Industrial Revolution have caused levels to triple since the start of the revolution. One further wrinkle is that mercury can be present in different forms. It can exist in a multitude of components of compounds in both organic and inorganic forms. Inorganic mercury does not readily enter and move through the food chain, whereas organic mercury moves through the food chain, accumulating in higher doses in those animals towards the top of the food chain, including large predatory fish, like tuna, for instance, and then humans. The organic forms are the forms we are most concerned about because organic mercury can accumulate in organisms such as humans and wildlife and cause detrimental effects such as neurological damage, said Anatone. To test if organic memory, or sorry, if organic mercury was present in the food chain, the team sampled water, sediments, and the tissue of a small fish called the Eastern Blacknose Dace from seven sites along the river, several from areas where factories once stood and several from reference sites for comparison. The Still River watershed has significantly high levels of mercury in the fish, no matter where the fish are from along the river, said Anatone. 
fish muscle tissue from six out of seven of the sites had concentrations that exceed EPA guidance levels for weekly mercury consumption. That was especially surprising because the fish are only about three inches inside in size, and for them to be accumulating so much mercury, I just didn't expect it. They also found very high levels of mercury in the sediments from areas known to have been near hat factories and other direct point sources of pollution. Now, despite the high levels, much of the mercury is in inorganic forms, which is odd given the high levels found in the dace. One of the really interesting findings in this study was that despite the very high concentrations of mercury in the sediments, at least it is my feeling based on the data that we have, is that a lot of the mercury is not bioavailable. Around 1% is available for further uptake in the food web, and that is what we are worried about essentially. Even though it is a pretty low percentage, it is impressive to see that it resulted in such high levels of bioaccumulation in the fish. Now, the authors hope that this research will inspire others to do more research in similar veins, and more importantly, that this sort of research is used to um, affect policy decisions. Research like this is the only way to find out how things are really moving in the ecosystem, said Bauman. These studies are what you can use to inform decision makers. Do we need to remediate? Should we let it be? Should we warn people who angle there regularly? This info is really needed. And for the Swift River in particularly, Anatone suggests that action should be, well, rather swift. We studied eastern black-nosed dace. Humans don't eat dace, but humans eat trout, and trout eat the dace. I think it is important that guidelines for fishing are put into place like catch and release, or these areas are limit are made off limits for fishing. And finally, this, the team suggests that the river presents a unique system for studying how mercury cycles through New England streams and how this might be affected by climate change. Okay, let's move on now to talk about the Western corn rootworm, which has been nicknamed the billion dollar beetle for the amount of economic loss to farmers caused by the larvae of these beetles. They are quite insidious. They're in the soil gnawing away at the roots and cutting off the terminal ends of the roots, the lifeblood of corn, says Brooks Tabashnik, Regents Professor and Head of the University of Arizona Department of Entomology. And if they're damaged enough, the corn plants actually fall over. Now, one of the main ways that modern farmers have combated the beetle's deleterious effects is through genetically modified crops. BT corn has been used since 2003. This corn is modified to produce proteins from the bacterium Bacillus thuringiensis. Unfortunately, the pests are beginning to develop a resistance to these proteins. So, now the efficacy of this technology is threatened, and if farmers were to lose BT corn, the western corn rootworm would become a billion-dollar pest again, said Yves Carrier, a professor of entomology in the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences. Carrier is the lead author of a study that will soon be published in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, or PNAS, 
along with Tabashnik and colleagues from North Carolina State University, the University of California, Davis, McGill University, and Stockholm University, which looked at crop rotation as a possible solution. Now, in 2016, the EPA actually mandated crop rotation as the primary means for arresting the extent of damage from resistant corn rootworms. However, until now, there has been limited scientific scrutiny of such a recommendation to see if it actually is the solution. Carrier and his team analyzed six years of field data from 25 crop reporting districts in Iowa, Illinois, and Minnesota some of the worst affected states. The study finds that crop rotation does indeed work. By rotating different cultivars of BT corn and rotating with other carps as well, farmers were able to greatly reduce rootworm damage. They found that crop rotation also provided benefits such as increased yield, reduction in fertilizer use, usage, and better pest control across the study. Farmers have to diversify their BT crops and rotate, Carrier said. Diversify the landscape and the use of pest control methods. No one technology is the silver bullet. Tabashnik brought knowledge from the University of Arizona's work against the pink bullworm. The key to er eradicating pink bullworm in the U.S. was integrating BT cotton with other control tactics, Tabashnik said. We succeeded, whereas this voracious invasive pest rapidly evolved resistance to BT cotton in India, where the genetically engineered crops were used alone. Farmers in the U.S. took U Arizona's, U Arizona scientists' advice to plant what are called refuge crops, non-BT cotton plants near BT cotton to help the survival of susceptible insects. This prevents only... This prevents only those insects who are resistant from surviving to breed. So it allows the ones that are non-resistant to have non-resistant plants that they can munch on and then they are able to breed. So that keeps the uh, resistant gene as just one among many instead of becoming the dominant. During the last decade, we have learned that refuges are often not sufficient to delay resistance in pests like the corn rootworm, Carrier said. It would be wise to diversify management tactics before such pests evolve resistance. This approach, called integrated pest management, is vital for preserving the benefits of biotechnology. Now, it's also important for organic farmers who have used BT as a natural pesticide. Ironically, the commercial growers are being told to go back to a more sustainable practice. People have been rotating crops since the dawn of farming. The new agricultural technology we develop can only be sustained if we put it in the context of things we've known for thousands of years, Tabashnik said. If we just put it out there and forget what we've learned in terms of crop rotate of in terms of rotating crops, it won't last. And of course, this has been a big, big point in um, the world of organic farming. And so they basically are probably saying, I told you so right now. But um, I think it's important that we have big ag scientists who are actually working on how to prevent it from becoming a crisis. And it looks like they have found a way that as long as farmers are being good about doing crop rotations and 
um, maintaining their stocks properly, that we will continue to be able to stave off resistance. And, you know, it's, it's as good for the farmer as it is for anyone else. So uh, I can't imagine there would be resistance to that among farmers. And so, yeah, I think it's very, it's very good. And so, of course, the researchers emphasize that the usage of crop rotations is essential for maintaining the use of BT corn and suggest that the loss of BT corn would require farmers to return to soil insecticides, which would, of course, have a large negative impact environmentally. So obviously, if they lose BT corn, they'd have to go back to doing it the old way, which was to pour a bunch of chemicals into the um, soil. And so, yeah, we definitely do not want to go back to that. Okay, let's move on now to a really quirky finding. Um, I read this and I was like, oh, I totally have to talk about this because it's fascinatingly weird. Plato, <laughs> the Greek philosopher who lived in the 5th century BCE, believed that there were four, five types of matter, earth, air, fire, water, and cosmos. Each was given a particular geometry to associate them with one of what are called the platonic solids or the platonic um, shapes. For, for Earth, the platonic shape was the cube. Now, of course, we've come a long way from Plato, but it turns out that a new paper suggests that in this one case, Plato might actually have been right. The paper published in PNAS by a team from the University of Pennsylvania, Budapest University of Technology and Economics, and the University of Debrecen combined math, geology, and physics to show that the average shape of rocks on Earth is a cube. <laughs> Plato is widely recognized as the first person to develop the concept of an atom, the idea that matter is composed of some indivisible component at the smallest scale, says Douglas Jeromek, a geophysicist in Penn's School of Arts and Sciences Department of Earth and Environmental Science. But that understanding was only conceptual. Nothing about our modern understanding of atoms derives from what Plato told us. The interesting thing here is that what we find with rock or Earth is that there is more than a conceptual lineage back to Plato. It turns out that Plato's conception about the element Earth being made up of cubes is, literally, the statistical average model for real Earth. And that is just mind-blowing. Absolutely. <laughs> so the first findings came from the mathematician Gabor uh, Demokos, of the Budapest University of Technology and Economics, who predicted that natural rocks would fragment into generally cubic shapes. He then consulted Hungarian theoretical physics, Frank Kuhn, an expert on fragmentation, and Janos Thorok, an expert on statistics and computational models. I apologize for any names that I am wildly mispronouncing. After they discussed the findings, they then turned to Jeromac to see how this would work in nature. What shapes are actually created when rocks break apart? They found that the mathematics worked with not only processes on Earth, but also around the solar system. Fragmentation is this ubiquitous process that is grinding down planetary materials, Jeromac notes. 
The solar system is littered with ice and rocks that are ceaselessly smashing apart. This work gives us a signature of that process that we've never seen before. They realized that the components which break out of a formerly solid object must fit together without gaps, and the only one of the platonic forms, polyhedra with sides of equal length, which does this are cubes. One thing we've speculated in our group is that, quite possibly, Plato looked at a rock outcrop and after processing or analyzing the image subconsciously in his mind, he conjectured that the average shape is something like a cube. Jerome Max said. And so to test the mathematical models in the real world, the team measured a wide variety of rocks, both the hun both uh, hundreds that they collected themselves and thousands more from data sets of previously corrected collected rocks. They found that the majority were a good fit to the so-called cubic average. The theory even acknowledges outliers such as basalt columns. The world is a messy place, says Jerome Mack. Nine times out of ten, if a rock gets pulled apart or squeezed or sheared, and usually these forces are happening together, you end up with fragments which are, on average, cubic-shaped. It's only if you have a very special stress condition that you get something else. The Earth just doesn't do this often. They also looked at two-dimensional shapes and found that the central concept of splitting polygons in predictable average shapes is the same, but these shapes tend to be either rectangles or a sort of hexagon, uh, a hexagon, um, the way that you might see pictures of dried, cracked mud, for instance. When you pick up a rock in nature, it's not a perfect cube, but each one is a kind of statistical shadow of a cube, adds Jerome Mack. It calls to mind Plato's allegory of the cave. He, posit he posited an idealized form that was essential for understanding the universe, but all we see are distorted shadows of that perfect form. So that's really interesting. Uh, it's one of those sort of jokes about the ancients that, you know, they had all these really good ideas that were just completely and utterly wrong most of the time. It's like, clearly, it wasn't their fault. They were just, you know, getting to, uh, they were just getting used to this whole thing about philosophizing, even though, um, you know, there probably were philosophers before the ancient Greeks uh, started it, but they just weren't called that, and they we just don't have as good of records of them as we do of the Greeks uh, and the later Roman uh, philosophers. And so there's a lot that they get wrong, obviously. Um, my personal favorite is always the, the idea that, um, you know, women are mainly just vessels uh, for incubation, and that... Uh, babies were created when the when a tiny tiny uh humunculus of a person uh was carried into the woman from the male's sperm um and then just incubated there um it's just something delightfully odd about the visuals of that for me um and so yeah um they got a lot wrong but sometimes they you know were really starting to explore things um, but, uh, as we talked about last, uh, week, I believe, or a couple of weeks ago, maybe, uh, the idea of, um, sort of inherent racism in classical, uh, studies, they definitely weren't the first people to think of these things. Uh, they definitely weren't the first people to, uh, or 
they weren't the only ones, I should say. Other people also uh, explored these ideas and figured out these mathematical principles and things like that independently of the Greeks and Romans. And so, for instance, we know that um, other civilizations developed the ideas of geometry and even um, calculus, I believe, outside of Greece and Rome. And so they aren't the only uh, sort of genesis of these ideas. They're just the ones we know the best because they're the ones that we've been taught about um, based on this idea of Greeks and Romans being the cradle of civilization, um, which of course is ridiculous. And even in within that, um, I was actually watching a um, interview with the woman who wrote the article I was talking about a couple of weeks ago, who I'm terrible, I'm forgetting her name, but, you know, she was talking about the idea that uh, when you look at sort of the ways in which we portray the classics and portray uh, the ancient Greeks and Romans, they never look like modern Greeks, for instance. Um, Modern Greeks are kind of written out of their own history. So, of course, she brings up, and this isn't a scholarly example, but, uh, you know, the infamous idea that... um, when you want to talk about the um, the um, Battle of Thermopylae, you have Scottish people <laughs> representing the Greeks. Um, and, you know, a lot of blue-eyed, blonde-haired uh, people. And it's just really interesting and um, ahistorical. <laughs> okay, um, so we're going to take a break now and do some show promos and some PSAs. We're going to come back and we're going to actually talk about one more story from Greece, um, from ancient Greece. So do stay tuned for that. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. 
Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7 here on Valley Free Radio or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, we are back. And as advertised, we are going to spend one more story in ancient Greece. And so archaeologist Debbie Sneed from California State University has written a new paper suggesting that the ancient Greeks were the first people who we know about who created accessible architecture. Ramps are often found at the entrances of ancient Greek temples and have largely been, well, frankly ignored. However, Sneed believes that they represent a specific architectural response to the needs of the disabled. She studied ramps at several temples in ancient Greece and noticed a pattern. They had an increased presence at healing sanctuaries. In organizing and constructing sanctuaries, the ancient Greeks considered the sort of average visitor, she noted, at a non-healing sanctuary, Your average visitor may not have been disabled, but healing sanctuaries specifically attracted people with permanent or temporary disabilities, prolonged illnesses, and other conditions of the body and mind. As such, they built these spaces so that they were accessible to and usable by the people they were specifically built to serve. Now, we know that the ancient Greeks had citizens who had different abilities when it came to mobility, as we would, of course, expect to see in any culture. We also have written accounts from physicians and historical texts detailing, often in exquisite detail, injuries from the battlefield. And speaking of battles, uh, Miletides the military leader who actually defeated the Persians at the Battle of Marathon in 490 BC, was so badly wounded that he needed to be carried around on a stretcher for the rest of his life. We also have tales from less illustrious folk. An ancient Athenian in the 4th century made a speech defending himself from a charge of basically welfare fraud. Ancient Athens had a disability pension system. If you were disabled and couldn't work as a result of your disability, you were entitled to maintenance from the city. The man walked with two crutches and was defending his need for this pension. Sneed also looked at two healing temples in Epidaurus and Corinth. The sanctuary of Asclepius at Epidaurus which was an important healing temple in the 6th century BCE, which was significantly upgraded after 370 BCE, was devoted to the worship of Asclepius, the god of healing and medicine. Sneed found 11 stone ramps connected to nine different structures. She found a similar pattern at the sanctuary of Asclepius at Corinth. In In Corinth, and also some healing temples in South Italy, Archaeologists have actually excavated dedications of body parts, referred to as anatomical votives. Visitors would dedicate a representation of the body part they wanted healing, said Sneed. We have a lot of legs and feet, ears, shoulders, and shoulders, but also things like uteruses, brains, and livers. Sneed notes that the ramps 
would have made it easier for people with disabilities to navigate the temple's buildings. Now, Sneed concedes that they could have had other uses. They could have been used for activities like delivering supplies, or we also know that a lot of these temples had mobile um, statues of the gods that would be um, paraded around at times, and so it might be a ramp for taking the god in and out of the uh, temple. But... um, she suggests that they actually were meant for access, but then used for other things as well. When classicists discuss these ramps, they explain them as a means of conveying sacrificial animals, statues, and other dedications or building materials. And it's true, we can't rule out those addi- we can't rule those additional uses out, said Sneed. This is the best idea. This is the idea behind universal design in modern architecture, that you build things that will benefit the most people, the most numbers of people. I think that the ramps, especially at healing sanctuaries, were built with disabled people in mind, but they would have been multifunctional. Sneed also notes that the ramps were expensive to build and required time and material, which suggests that they were added not just to the building for style reasons, that they would have absolutely had some sort of real function. Now, other researchers have suggested, obviously, that more study is needed to determine if the pattern is more universal among healing temples, but they do acknowledge that the idea is interesting. Sneed noted that quantification of ramps is hard, but she points to the sanctuary of Zeus at Olympia, which features only two ramps, and one really that only, only one that leads into an actual building. She concludes that these ramps have been known about since we've known about Greek temples and sanctuaries. They weren't hidden. I didn't have to uncover them. I just had to ask different questions. Diversity in academia is important because we need people who, by virtue of the fact that they have different lives, will ask new and different questions of the material of the past. And indeed, it is our responsibility to recruit and invest in people who will do just that. I think that's extremely important. Uh, and obviously, we also need to make our spaces spaces accessible to them, um, which academia has been very slow to adapt to um, in the name of tradition, mostly. Um, and also, as with the ancient Greeks, cost saving. Um, and so it's that's another really important point about um, one of the things that, um, was talked about in that interview, wherein, um, there was a lot of talk about gatekeeping and about the right sort of people who were allowed to study, uh, ancient Greece and Rome and how that has perpetuated this idea of, um, Greek and Roman civilization being basically the cradle of all civilization. Um, and in point of fact, apparently a couple of years ago at a uh, classicist conference, someone actually got up and made that thesis basically um, and said that they had to sort of defend Western civilization and Greek and Roman studies from uh, the ills of diversity. Um, and, you know, so that is unfortunately still a very, uh, long road to go to get to a place where classics 
is more open to other ideas. Um, but all we can do is continue to try and open up those spaces and to continue continue to push back on the idea that there is something uniquely grand about Greece and Rome that is not found in other major civilizations throughout the world. And that's not to say that the Greeks and Romans didn't do amazing things. They absolutely did. Um, but the idea that they were the only ones doing those things is just no longer uh, supportable by the ev overwhelming evidence from around the rest of the world. Okay. So let us look at something completely different. Um, let us now move on to new evidence that has caused a paper that I talked about back in March actually to be retracted. And so the paper described an extremely odd fossil of the head of what was thought to be a tiny feathered dinosaur or bird-like dinosaur trapped in a piece of amber from Myanmar. Now the fossil still exists, it's still real, uh, but there is some question about whether the 99 million year old specimen is actually a dinosaur or a lizard, and that's why the authors chose to retract the paper until more studies can be done. And so this isn't a case of malfeasance. This is just a case of somebody else has come along and said, yeah, but look at these other things. And they've said, well, we're not sure we agree with you, but we're going to look and we're going to we're going to take it back and we're going to take a step back. Um, and so the fossil is from a um, 99 million year old specimen. And so there's questions about whether it is a dinosaur or just a lizard. Not just a lizard, but a dinosaur or a lizard. And so the finding is absolutely still extraordinary, but the paper was retracted again so that more study can be done to figure out what Occudentavis <laughs> truly is. It's just a really weird animal and an important discovery regardless of whether it's a weird bird or a weird lizard with a bird head, study co-lead researcher Jin Mai O'Connor, a senior professor of vertebrate paleontology at the Chinese Academy of Sciences, told Live Science in an email. A new preprint study by Zi Zheng Li from the Institute of Vertebrate Paleontology and Paleoanthropology at the Chinese Academy of Sciences and colleagues looked at the CAT scans of the animal and found several features that seemed to be better aligned with lizard features rather than a bird-like dinosaur. Among the features are the lizard-like teeth and the fenestra, or the openings in the skull behind the eye socket that are found in animals such as dinosaurs and lizards. O'Connor's team responded by saying that while they, quote, welcome any new interpretations or alternative hypotheses of the creature, this new research failed to provide conclusive evidence for the re-identification. Despite this, O'Connor conceded that, I do think we were wrong and that oculendentavis, oculendent it's very hard to say, <laughs> is a lizard, not a bird. You just can't prove it unequivocally with the available evidence. Now, we may have a better understanding soon because another team of researchers is studying a different specimen of the same weird little animal. 
If it turns out to be a lizard, it will potentially represent, quote, a new and strange instance of convergent evolution between widely disparate reptile groups, O'Connor noted. She also noted that when you look at the specimen in a phylogenetic or family tree analysis with fossil birds, it looks like a bird. As long as any other birds were included in the analysis, Oculodentavis was resolved as a bird, O'Connor said. Removal of all birds made it resolve as a lizard, but also caused major reptile clades to collapse, showing just how weird this specimen is. She also notes that hummingbird-sized birds that lived during the Cretaceous period, right smack dab in the middle of uh, where this was found, have been found in this area. So it was not out of the realm of possibility that this would be a bird-like dinosaur. Now, one of the other issues is that the Society for Vertebrate Paleontology has asked researchers to refrain from using Burmese amber collected in or exported from Myanmar since June 2017. And this is because they worry that the funds for the sale of such items could be used to fund the decades-long civil war in the country. Now, the piece that O'Connor and her colleagues were describing was found in 2016, so that was not um, a problematic issue for them. That was not part of uh, what was going on. But there is that ability to uh, that ability to be able to find new specimens is currently not really an option because, well, nobody really wants to be funding uh, a civil war um you know it's it's basically uh one might compare it as sort of blood amber the way one talks about blood diamonds and so um i think it's really important that scientists uh support this idea that we shouldn't be giving money to um support what is probably going to be arms used by people against other people in that country. Um, So it's unfortunate because that is a hugely, hugely important um, site for finding these kinds of fossils. The amber deposits in Myanmar are just teeming with life. Um, But it's really important not to get involved in those kinds of conflicts which means that sometimes scientists have to wait and uh, let the geopolitics take over for a while. And um, I think that's a very good decision that they've made. Okay, let us once again turn to foxes. We talked a few weeks ago about how they seem to be coming to be becoming more domesticated as they continue to live in close quarters with people, especially in England and in cities. Well, it turns out that foxes have been following humans and feasting on their leftovers for as much as 42,000 years ago. A new study in PLOS One by Chris Baumann at the University of Tübingen in Germany and colleagues found that looked at foxes in relationship to humans. Now, foxes tend to be scavengers when possible. In the wild, they tend to feed on leftovers from larger predators like bears and wolves. But the closer they live to humans, the more their diet is made up of the remains of human foodstuffs. 
So the researchers felt that they might be able to use this commensal relationship to actually map places where humans have inhabited in the past. So the team compared ratios of carbogen of carbon and nitrogen, not carbon nitrogen, um, <laughs> isotopes in the remains of herbivores, large carnivores, and red and arctic foxes from several middle and upper Paleolithic archaeological sites in southwest Germany. They found that previous to 42,000 years ago, before Neanderthals really moved into the area, the diet of the foxes consisted mainly of scraps left by large predators. Once Neanderthals moved into the area, they began to see that the foxes shifted to a diet that consisted mainly of reindeer, which were known to be an important foodstuff for these early human cousins. Um, so, of course, uh, remember that Neanderthals are technically humans. Um, I mean, they are actually considered um, um, Homo sapien um, or Homo they're Homo Neanderthalus. So they are a Homo, which means that they are a human. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> and so um, even though, you know, they didn't eventually make it to the end of the line, they're still considered early humans. So this suggests that once foxes were in contact with humans, they really rather quickly began this commensal relationship, which could actually help archaeologists and anthropologists anthropologists to see signs of human occupation in the remains of foxes. So if you do this kind of isotopic um, analysis on their bones and you find that it looks like they're eating things that humans were hunting, then even if you don't find human remains, which we know are very hard to find in some places, you can potentially find the signs of humans in the bones of these foxes, which is really cool. Now, of course, all fossils are vanishingly rare. Um, you know, we always talk about how, uh, if you really think about it, the amount of fossils that we have is extremely tiny for the amount of creatures that have lived on this earth. And even if you think about all of the fossils in all of the museums across the world, a lot of those are actually just copies of museum bones in other museums. Um, not all of them are actually fossils that were dug up out of the ground and are in the, the uh, museum and are original. And so it helps to have multiple ways to track these things so that we can get a better idea of these early um, human migrations into different areas. And so the authors note that Dietary reconstructions of Ice Age foxes have shown that early modern humans had an influence on the local economy as early as 40,000 years ago. The more humans populated a particular region, the more the foxes adapted to them. And so, of course, now we're seeing that they seem to be taking the next step and becoming even more closely connected to humans, um, sort of becoming the the next uh canine <laughs> to join the ranks of uh, human companionship. So, um, and I'm all for that because foxes are adorable and I would love to have a pet fox. Uh, I've spoken about that on this show many a time, so I won't uh, go on at length about my, my absolute deep 
deep desire for uh, a fox friend. <laughs> okay, so let's move on and talk about lightning. Now, of course, we've had a lot of severe storms lately, so it's kind of on people's minds. Um, I have to admit that I actually really love lightning. I spent um, the other day sitting in uh, a window, which I know you're not supposed to do. My mom always used to yell at me when I was young, but watching lightning strikes and um, I just, you know, they are just so incredible um, and so amazing. And, you know, they, they are one of the things that is truly awe-inspiring. Um, and luckily, though, what we get here in uh, our non-tropical region is nothing compared to what they get in the actual tropics. And so, you know, we'll have a couple of months where we have some pretty severe storms. You might get a couple of really bad lightning strikes, but a lot of the lightning strikes don't do anything and everybody goes back to to doing their own thing. Uh, we lost power for like five minutes a couple of days ago and that was it. Um, I know other people did lose power in other places, but, um, you know, we still are very much not getting as much as people in the tropics do. And so that's what we're going to talk about. And so researchers from the Smithsonian Research Institute, STRI, in Panama, have published a set of maps which show the locations of lightning stripes, lightning strikes across the tropics, uh, and it's published in the journal Global Change Biology. Amazingly, they found that based on ground and satellite data, they suggest that more than 100 million lightning strikes on land will occur each year in the tropics. These strikes have a large impact on the forest and other regions between the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn. Lightning influences the ability of forests to store biomass and therefore carbon because it tends to strike the largest trees, said Evan Gora, a postdoctoral fellow at STRI who recently finished his doctorate at the University of Louisville. And lightning strikes may also be very important in savanna ecosystems. Because it's a hard phenomenon to study, lightning has largely been ignored by researchers as a source of impact on tropical forests. The team had previously published the first of this kind of study, which suggested that lightning probably kills half of the biggest trees, killed half of the biggest trees in a Panamanian forest. Tropical ecologist Steve Yenoviak study co-author and a professor at the University of Louisville was actually studying ants in the forest canopy and he actually began to wonder about the effects of lightning and so he invited lightning researchers Jeffrey Birchfield and Philip Bitzer from the University of Alabama at Huntsville to set up lightning detectors at STRIO's um, sorry STRI's Barrow Colorado Island Research Station we found that a lightning strike damages a total of 23.6 trees and kills 5.5 of these trees within a year on average, Yanoviak said. Now, Gora actually led an effort to map lightning strikes uh, based on images from the Earth Network's Global Lightning Network onto a map of tropical land cover zones from the International Geosphere Biosphere Program. And 
the moderate resolution spectro radiometer land cover climate modeling grid. Whew. <laughs> Based on this info and on the ground effects of around 92 lightning strikes, both from the detectors and from previous studies, they estimate that estimate that lightning damages approximately 832 million tropical trees each year, with roughly a quarter of the trees potentially dying from the strikes. They also found that lightning favored certain ecosystems, with forests, savannas, and urban areas more affected than grasslands, shrublands, and croplands. Now, of course, there's still a lot to figure out how some uh, trees manage to survive strikes while others succumb to their injuries, for instance. Um, but they suspect that trees may have developed defense to something uh, to this because, of course, it must be something that they've had to deal with for millions of years. So for as long as there have been trees, there have been lightning strikes. So they figure that there must be something going on there evolutionarily. Um, this is the best evidence to date that lightning is a major disturbance influencing tropical forest dynamics and structure, said STRI staff scientist and study co-author Helene Muller-Landau. We suspect that our study vastly underestimates the total effect of lightning. Lightning strikes may play a major role in forest biomass carbon cycling, not only in tropical forests, but also in other tropical ecosystems. So that's pretty cool. All right. Finally tonight, let's talk about a crazy new material. I know, but trust me, it's going to be cool. It has been billed as being uncuttable. The material, called Proteus after the shape-shifting god, is made of ceramic spheres encased in a cellular aluminum structure that in the laboratory could not be cut by angle grinders, drills, or high-pressured water jets. The team consisted of researchers from Durham University, UK, and Fraunhofer Institute for Machine Tools and Forming Technology, IWU, in Chemnitz, Germany, and was inspired by the tough cellular skin of grapefruits and the fracture-resistant shells of mollusks. They mimicked the natural material of aragonite, which is found in mollusk shells, with industrial alumina ceramics and an aluminum metallic foam matrix. This results in a material that is lightweight, strong, and non-cuttable. They suggest, for instance, it could be used for bike locks, lightweight armor, and in protective clothing and equipment, obviously for people who work with cutting tools. <laughs> and so um, the way it works is that when using either an angle iron or a drill, the vibrations created by the ceramic spheres actually uh, blunt the cutting disc or drill bit. So they actually interact with the cutting surface and instead of just kind of res becoming um, separated by the cutting instrument, they actually kind of fight back against it and they are able to actually, um, they're actually able to resist it. And so the interactions between the disc and ceramic spheres create high speed motion, which resists cutting potentially forever. Um, they haven't found that it breaks down yet, um, but it may obviously. 
In the case of water jets, the ceramic spheres widened the jet, which substantially reduced the speed and weakened its ability to cut. Lead author Dr. Stefan Sisniewski, assistant professor of applied mechanics in the Department of Engineering at Durham University, said, We were intrigued by how the cellular structure of the grapefruit and the tiled structure of mollusk shells can prevent damage to the fruit or the creatures inside, despite being made of relatively weak organic building blocks. These natural structures informed the working principle of our metallic ceramic material, which is based on dynamic dynamic interactions with the applied load, in contrast to passive resistance. Essentially, cutting our material is like cutting through a jelly filled with nuggets. If you get through the jelly, you hit the nuggets, and the material will vibrate in such a way that it destroys the cutting disc or drill bit. The ceramics embedded in this flexible material are also made of very fine particles, which stiffen and resist the angle grinder or drill when you're cutting at speed in the same way that a sandbag would resist and stop a bullet at high speed. This material could have lots of useful and exciting applications in the security and safety industries. In fact, we are not aware of any other manufactured non-cuttable material in existence as of now. So that's pretty cool. Now, as for the name, uh, study co-author Dr. Miranda Anderson, the Department of Philosophy at the University of Sterling said, because the successful resistance of our material system requires it to undergo internal transformations, we chose the name Proteus. In 1605, Francis Bacon compared natural materials to Proteus, who ever changed shapes. And he argued that through experimentation, we can reveal the metamorphic qualities of materials. Dr. Sisniski, sorry. Um, <laughs> I think it's probably the best I'm going to get. It's S-Y-Z-Y-N-I-S-Z-E-W-S-K-I. And I apologize to all of the Slavic uh, people who are listening to this and to whom I... Uh, owe a great debt of apology for the mispronunciations, um, added, this is what we've achieved with this new material, and we're excited by its potential. And honestly, I'm sure pe- most people would really, for the most part, be excited simply to have a better like bike lock, um, because I know that uh, bike locks are a constant source of frustration for people. Uh, but yeah, all those other things are good too. <laughs> So the researchers have a patent pending and they are hoping to work with manufacturers to create items for the market. And so that will be really interesting to find these items made from this supposedly uncuttable material. All right, that's all the time we have for tonight. Uh, Please stay tuned and um, I'll be back next week. Good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.